Hello, everyone. Welcome to How We Work. I am your host, Dr. Misha N. Martin, and this week we are in for a treat. My friend who constantly inspires me, Dr. Khalifa Oliver. She is a brilliant people leader, speaker of truths that nobody else wants to say, but my Khalifa is going to say it, executive coach, self-professed people data and research nerd, and also amazing human being, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Khalifa Oliver. I don't even know what I do with an intro like that. Like, no pressure. Right? <laughs> you know what? I'm giving you your flowers. I'm giving them to you. Listen, I'm, so... I'm taking it. I've been trying to teach people, take your flowers while you're still living. So I'm going to take the flowers. I'm taking it. I'm taking it. I'm pulling yes. it from the atmosphere. <laughs> so we like to start out, we are work human. So we like to start out by talking about the human. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Dr. Khalifa as a human being. So Dr. Khalifa is currently living in the and and embracing her and. And what that means is I'm living in the intersection of so many things. I am a doctor, not medical. I (laughs) am a wife. I am a mother. I am a consultant. I am starting to embrace all of the ands. I am black. I am a woman. I am fun. (laughs) My kids think I'm hilarious. So the human is currently living in the end. I am evolving. I am living in my main character season. And so that's the human. That's where she is right now. I love talking to you. You're living in the ant. You always say something that sticks with me. I do want to agree that you are indeed hilarious. I've been seeing your little TikTok videos. I haven't seen you on Instagram and on Facebook, hashtag KO Truths. So I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your social media presence and how you show up there, what you talk about and how to find you, because I need everybody to be hearing and listening and watching these hilarious videos. Yes, ma'am. And it's funny, people don't recognize that I'm still fairly newish to all I do on social media. But social media for me right now is about being authentic. I want people who meet me in person and people who see my social media to know that it's me. That's exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to just give me, I'm trying to give my main character energy out there. I know that a lot of what we do in terms of data, in terms of analytics, in terms of HR cannot always be the most fun. And it could be boring, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. my intention is to make it practical and feel accessible and democratize it. And like even find the jokes in it, right? Because sometimes I think we take ourselves too seriously. And as part of my own evolution, I have started doing a lot of coaching. And in that process, I found that people really hold on to the parts of me that talk about my main character season and how I got Mm -hmm. on that journey and talk about how I create experiences. So I focused initially and my expertise is an employee experience, but it's about the whole human experience and the whole people experience. And so 
I've started to grow that into experience coaching. And so what you'll find in my social medias is a whole conglomeration of all the elements of me, my professional side, my funny side, my fun side. And if you're looking for me on every social media platform, I think I have them all now, except X. I have them all now. Just look for me as Dr. Khalifa O. So I'm on TikTok, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Insta, I'm on Threads, <laughs> I'm on Mastodon, just Dr. Khalifa O. Mastodon. Facebook, just look for me and follow and support. We're building this revolution up of main characters. <laughs> okay, so let me spell Khalifa for the listeners because they must find you. K-A-L-I-F-A. Dr. Khalifa. And I always say S as in father. <laughs> Absolutely. S. It's like when I spell my name, I say S as in Sam. <laughs> yeah, because I go F as in father. So you're right. So K-A-L-I-F as in father, A-O. Awesome. So one of the things I love about you is that you talk about inclusion a lot and you have such unique perspectives on the different elements of inclusion. So I want to go there for a bit for our listeners. You have a quote that caught my eye that feels so indicative of our world. It's not that being inclusive is hard. It's just that being an a-hole is much easier. It's just so. <laughs> you know, facts. How have you seen that quote? <laughs> I knew we were going to be kikiing. How have you seen that quote come to life in your work with organizations? I've often had the privilege, if you will, to sit down with leaders of organizations and to just talk to leaders casually. One of what I call one of my superpowers is I try to learn how to disappear in your room so that my voice can remain there and my ideas and my help can remain there. But I am not necessarily there because a key aspect of what I have to do is listen. If I'm not listening, then I'm not going to be able to have an impact or make change. And the thing is, when people are comfortable enough, they say things. All kinds of stuff. In the room that you're Mm -hmm. sitting in. And you realize that when you offer, because I see things come on the table, well, why don't we do X? This might work for everybody. And then I hear managers, I hear leaders go, no, I don't know why we should do that. And I realize it's just because being an a-hole is just easier. It's simple. You don't have to think any further than that, right? Because when you start thinking about, well, what's the strategy? How do we people send to this design? How do we take that extra five minutes to figure out how to accommodate, how to include, how to segment this group? It's just easier not to care. And if you're intentionally not caring, you're an a-hole. And that's all. It's just easier to be an a-hole when you intentionally don't care, you know, especially because I know for a fact the information is in your room and you're willfully ignoring it because it's easier and more comfortable. You're also an a-hole when your comfort is more important than somebody else's ability to exist. Okay. So I like that last statement and I want to go there a little bit. You're so right about intentionality being an important part of doing this work. And one of the things I find as we're talking about people being a-holes in this space, you as a woman or a person of color are coming forward with a vulnerability or something wrong. And that's difficult enough to do. And one of the things I realize that people do is make it more about them and their intention Mm -hmm. and their comfort to your point 
than about me and how that made me feel. I'm coming to you about me and you insist on talking about you, right? Right, right. And in that moment, I'm like, in this moment, it is not about you. And then, you know what the other thing is that kills me? The focus on aesthetic. I don't care about your aesthetic when I have an issue that has impacted me. This is my experience and I don't have Mm -hmm. the right to dictate somebody else's experience. I have the right to hear and try to understand and respect somebody's experience. And I think that's what it is. When you center everything around yourself, then the only person who lives in your world is yourself. And you're existing in your own vacuum and your own echo chamber. So don't come all alarmed when something else happens or a decision is made and you're not the center of it. And then you want to clutch your pearls. Take your pearls clutch them and walking back into your little room by yourself. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And now that we've started this personal therapy session for myself, (laughs) one of the other things (laughs) that happens all the time is when you're saying, hey, this is happening to me and this is how it feels. I feel like a lot of times people are protecting their own worldview instead of being open to the idea that my experience is different from how you think of the world and experience the world. Please pardon me for letting you know that this world or this neighborhood or this organization is far from perfect for everybody. Exactly. And it's crazy to me. And I don't want to use crazy in a pejorative way. So let me use bewildering. It's more (laughs) bewildering to me where until it hits your home, it doesn't exist. Let's think of like the hurricane that's coming. Because you don't have to evacuate does not mean that hurricane does not exist, right? I love that. It exists and it's going to impact you. When emergency funds need to be sent, they're coming from a federal ball of money. It impacts you. We should not have to wait for the rain to come to our homes to recognize that there are people in Florida who need help because they've just lost everything. And so I think, I don't know why that selfish worldview is okay. And I look at kids. So I got three small ones. They drive me crazy every day. But you look at kids and you realize that worldview is formed. It is not a natural worldview. So if we go back to question number one, we just evolve into a-holes. We just just evolve into them. Because what we do, what I realize is we're curious and we ask all the questions and we get beaten down in different ways, depending on what segment of the population you're from. Mm -hmm. But you get beaten down in so many different ways and we retire into the shell of a very tiny worldview of life. And we're told never to come out of that worldview of life. And that drives me absolutely insane because ever so often I learn of another person's worldview. And let me be clear. I don't care about everybody's worldview. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I could listen and I could respect the fact that somebody has a worldview. If you think that your worldview needs to be against somebody's existence, then I don't give a crap about your worldview. If you think that your supremacy maximizes your ability to thrive versus somebody, then I don't care about your worldview. I respect that you have it though. Good for you. I respect that you have it. But you already want to close the worldview because I listened to your worldview and I've made a decision that I don't agree with it. All the information that I have has told me that your worldview does not really function well in a world of people trying to survive and live and really exist. And it's weird to me that we see it in so many walks of life, but it's just like, well, it doesn't affect my life. So 
I feel like I see that a lot when it comes to LGBTQIA. People feel like their beliefs and their worldview trumps the right of individuals who identify as LGBTQIA2S plus to exist. And to exist. It's, right. it's wrong. I'm just going to say here, that right now. And here's it a is good wrong. example of that, Misha, the pronoun debate. Why is it a debate? Right. It takes nothing out of me to use the pronoun that the person has asked me to use. I might be able to pronounce because there are new ones coming up. It might take a minute for me to figure out exactly how you want me to pronounce it. It's fine. But why is it a debate? Somebody comes up to me and says, please use they. I'm like, okay, I'll use they. And if I make a mistake, I apologize. It's just for me to say I'll I'll apologize for mispronouncing somebody's name. This is something that takes nothing out of me to make somebody feel seen who didn't respect it. You can figure out Whether how to I, eat keto. Right. You can train for a marathon, but you can't say right. that. Like, right. Whether I understand it is not relevant. Whether I live it is not relevant. Whether I think it's okay is not relevant. Because when I respect what somebody wants, like a pronoun, I am respecting their right to exist. That's right. And I don't think people get that. You're arguing against my right to live to exist, to be in the same space as you, space you don't own, which we'll get to this. The idea that people think they own spaces, like in affirmative action, you're taking my space. That space wasn't. (laughs) That was never yours. (laughs) I'm going to start calling you the work Ianla. Like just just hashtag fix this experience. Okay, so never did, never did. So let's go back to your kids. I just read the article that you co-wrote for Harvard Business Review about having a neurodivergent child. And first of all, I can't believe it took me this long to know about this article and to read this article. And second of all, (laughs) And second of all, I just love the vulnerability and that you tackle these topics with this great blend of personal experience and science and data. And oh, by the way, receipts. I did see that article that you linked in HBR. I was like, oh, okay. Gasp. Clutches pearls. All right. So no apologies because that's how you roll. And I know it. And I love that about you. So can we talk about this a little bit? Neurodivergence is a topic that thankfully is coming up a lot more now than it used to. Can you talk a little bit more about how companies can adequately support parents of neurodivergent children? I think the first thing is to go back to that word that you're probably going to be hearing me say so much for this conversation is to exist. Mm-hmm. I think when we think about parenting, we think of it as a very black and white experience. You have a kid, you're a parent. End of story. Mm-hmm. But parenting as a whole exists on a spectrum. The minute that child is in a parent, is born, every experience that happens then is very unique to that parent. And it's very different when you have neurodivergence because in general, neurodivergence can show, can be diagnosed at different life stages. So for my son, for example, he wasn't diagnosed till he was three, like officially. I think I recognized something was different when he was about 18 months. Now imagine realizing that 
something is off, but everything that, and when I say off, I mean compared to what I'm being told. And every resource that has been given to me by my company, because my work is tied to my insurance, everything that is given to me by my company, everything that I Google on the internet, which is dangerous, parents, leave the internet alone. It doesn't match. And at this point, I'm a new mother. This is my first child. I am a new mother. I'm from the Caribbean. And girl, you know, this is I not know. this is not something we talk about. I know. Right? This is still very much an emerging concept in the Caribbean that you can have a neurodivision kid. They'll call kids like dunce. They'll mm-hmm. call kids strange. They'll call kids, right? And it's it's a cultural thing. And we're very protective of that. And so I had nowhere to turn. And so you go to, I'm a fact person. So I go to research and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I had to learn a lot of it on my own. It became like a full-time job because there was nothing in my company that neither provided good information on neurodivergence that showed that there was an existence of actual neurodivergent adults and employees mm-hmm. at work that I could even tap into. And because of that, I don't think it was a safe space to even bring it up or talk about it, right? And you're in meetings with people who are even more senior than you, who know you come back with a baby and all they're talking about is, how's your kid? Like, you know, the very mm-hmm. normal way you talk about children without recognizing that People's experiences are so different. And at times you're so tired. You don't want to talk about it. And you, what are you going to say when my, in the middle of a, a call? Well, my son is, is not really speaking yet. No, nope. I know they don't want to hear that part of the conversation, right? Because we're still not comfortable having those conversations. Because again, it's the existence of parents who do not have the experience that we show in movies and we show, uh, you know, the idea of the perfect parent and the perfect mm-hmm. child. We recognize tiredness in parents, but only for late, maybe about six to 12 months. After that, suck it up, parents, <laughs> <laughs> right? Why are you still tired? We don't recognize it enough. And I think it's just the idea of supporting parents recognizing that there is different types of experiences that parents can have. And whether it's a parent in ERG group that also focuses on different types of parenting and neurodivergence, I promise you, even if I just knew of the existence, mm-hmm. that would have been so helpful to me. It's if you have resources through your insurance company, making sure that when you negotiate that, that there is some element of neurodivergence, recognizing that it's a whole spectrum. My son has autism, but there are other kids with like Down syndrome. There are kids who have meningitis. There are kids who have physical ailments. And the physical ailments are a little bit easier to talk about because people understand what a child with cancer means. They understand that. But they don't necessarily understand what a child with autism means because there's no one formula for what that is. And I think making that easier to talk about and making it easier for parents to not discuss it if they don't want to, I think creates more of a psychological space for us to be more inclusive at companies. So Work Human recently did some research. The research report is called The Evolution of Work. And we looked at different personas in the workplace and differences in what they needed. And one of the things we found out is that caretakers, their need for flexibility 
is constant compared to other personas where that is going down as a reason why they're looking for a new place to work, except for caretakers. For caretakers, that remains important. So my question to you is, how do we identify these personas in the workplace? Do we need to? Like, do we need to know if somebody is neurodivergent or even the percentage of the population that is neurodivergent? And if so, how exactly should organizations think about that and go about that? To be honest, this is one of those tricky things because it's Mm -hmm. about people's ability to self-disclose that information in an era where, you know, and I think I put in the article where you're not sure that people don't think that it affects your ability to do the job because it it feels like there's no place. People tell you, bring your whole self until you do (laughs) to the workplace. And that's a whole, my whole, I have a whole different take on bring yourself to work. I think we've got to get away as a society and especially as workplaces to get away from the idea that we have to have evidence of existence in order to have programs that impact everyone. We don't need to segment our populations to death and have examples and evidence that you have neurodivergent people in your workforce to recognize that neurodivergence exists. There are a bunch of people who are at workplaces who do not know that they are neurodivergent officially. They have not been diagnosed. But I have seen so many people when I've started to finally have the conversations about my son and what I've learned and what it has also taught me about me go, huh, I might also be neurodivergent. And I watch some people where they say it just, it makes sense. It makes so much sense, right? And there are a lot of people getting late stage diagnosis right now because years ago, this wasn't a conversation people were willing to have. It was just this weakness, right? Like you were, uh, there's this sudden bane on a population. Mm -hmm. And now we're more willing to have those conversations. I think the short answer to your question is, if it's something that is existing and is as important to society, we should talk about it. You can have like parenting workshops where you talk about parenting in a workplace and you ensure that that person talks about neurodivergence and parenting. You can have somebody talking about DEI and make sure that they also talk about neurodivergence and cognitive diversity. Just acknowledge the existence of the unseen. I think we can do so much better. And I'm a data person. But I recognize Mm -hmm. that we are still evolving as a society on what diversity is. And I think where a lot of leaders get hung up is they're like, well, there's so many different segments and there's so much intersections of these segments. We can't possibly serve everybody. You can by just acknowledging that it's this thing that exists. And that's the end of it. I have seen sentences, sentences in a communication on data findings and employee engagement surveys. Brighton People's Day, a sentence of acknowledgement can make people exist, feel like they exist, that they've been seen. So in many cases, I find that employees aren't asking for you to change the world. They're just asking you to change your mind. They just want to be seen. And that's all it is. That's basically where I think we make these mistakes. We think we have to do these million dollar investments when they just want you to make a free sentence adjustment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I've heard Dr. Stephanie Murphy say something. Who I love too. Hey, Stephanie. Oh my gosh. I love her. I love her. Yes. So she says something similar about employee research, but I want to pick up on something you just said, and I want to go there 
and invite you to give us your hashtag KO truth about bringing your whole self to work. Cause I'm curious, what is your unique take on that? All right. Let me, let me sit up a little bit. <laughs> so my unique take on bringing yourself to work is I think we ask people to bring their whole selves to work all the time with one, the assumption that they know what their whole self is. Two, that their whole self is not constantly evolving. And three, that we have the right to dictate to somebody what their whole self is. I think some groups are so much better in compartmentalizing their lives. And we have to honor and respect that. When I bring my whole self to work, it might just be my whole work self. Mm. And that should be okay. I don't have to bring my whole parenting self to work. I don't have to bring my whole training self to work. <laughs> I think we have personas, we have hats, and we have roles. And if I, on this given day, decide to bring a part of myself that I think is crucial and necessary to work to work, then that's the whole self that I'm bringing today. And the other thing is, don't ask people to bring their whole selves to work and not be able to nurture that whole self. So if you want me to bring my whole self on a day when people just got shot in Dollar General for living like me, right? For looking like me, then expect that the self that I'm bringing is jaded on that day. And that is my whole self. That is my whole self at that time. On a day where my son is going through, he's having his down days, a bad day, where he doesn't sleep. And so I'm up all night with him. I'm bringing my whole self. You know what that self includes? Tiredness. That is my whole self. But if you're not willing to accept that whole self, don't ask me to bring my whole self unless it's safe. Yes. And it's not safe. That's the problem. Yeah. We speak to bringing your whole self to work, but we don't create the safety to bring the whole self to work. So y'all going to take at work what people bring at work and you're going to like it. That's the yeah. whole self you're going to get today. I think it's a little bit privileged to constantly ask people to bring their whole selves to work where places are not designed for that. And I think until we places get there, we're not there yet. This makes me think of something that I've been thinking about. Things like bring your whole self to work or take an employee survey, they all require a foundation of trust and psychological safety. And I feel like we don't spend enough time in that foundational bit before asking people to share their experiences, tell you what they're going through, take your survey, bring your whole self to work. So we need to spend a lot more time there, in my opinion, than we are currently. Yes, because what we tend to do, and listen, I'm guilty. I'm a civil writer. I'm a civil whisperer. I love employee listening, but we constantly re-traumatize people. There's a concept in psychology where we call the testing effect, right? Where we have to be really careful that when we deploy the item or the tool, that it's not the tool causing the person to have the response as opposed mm -hmm. to the person responding to the tool. And I think in work, we take that for granted, where people start to go, wait a minute, I am stressed. And so we're causing the stress by asking this question in this specific way. And then somebody's then reacting to the tool. 
as opposed yeah. to the other way around. And so what I've found is we are constantly seeing these things that sound good. Bring your whole self to work. We're a family. You know, we love to say the stuff. We love it. it sounds good. It sounds good. It markets well. We name all of our people. We say we belong to this organization, IT. So we uh-huh. have names and all that stuff. And then we don't live up to that. And all we do is create small traumatic events yes. that erode trust that slowly become bigger traumatic events. Because when you think of what is traumatizing, traumatizing, especially in workplaces related to the idea of trust, as you break little trust, like little razor blades that you could ignore, and people who are highly engaged, like my research has shown, people who are highly engaged, we have better coping mechanisms. We are like, okay, okay, I can take it. I can take it. Water off a duck's back. We can do this. Keep pedaling. Nobody's seeing me sweating under that water. We're good. But then after a while, what I found is highly engaged employees hit a critical level Yes, of coping. Oh, yes. And they're so attuned to the workplace that it's hard for them to start ignoring all of the things that they're making up for with their own mental acute, it was like their mental fortitude, if you will. And then they hit a point, I call it critical mass, they can't take anymore. And they're done. Yes. And the thing about highly talented, highly engaged people, you cannot get them back. No amount of comp increase, no amount of sorries works. Those type of people are the ones I always advise. Don't even bother to take the counter offer. <laughs> you have to go because you'll be gone in like three months. Because all you need after you make a decision to stay is that one thing to remind you. And that one thing is a re-traumatizing event. Constantly dealing with stress is trauma to the brain. When you think of what trauma is, it's to the brain and it forms into core memories. So we have all these traumatized people in jobs right now. They've been traumatized by jobs who said we're a family and laid them off. They're traumatized by jobs who said we love you and they watched them lay off their friends. They're traumatized that jobs that told them work well, perform well, we reward you and did not get an increase for high performance. We are family. We love your family. Your family is my family. And they found out that they were laid off while they were in the hospital having a baby. These are the kind of things that are happening. These people eventually go back and get hired somewhere else. They don't have time to deal with trauma because our lives and our identities and our culture has made it that we have to work. We have to work. We got to pay bills. We have to work. And so we go into the next job, traumatized. No time to get over that trauma. And then we go ahead and we perpetuate that trauma. And then that job re-traumatizes us. Because if you think about a traumatic situation, it doesn't matter if I'm in the U.S. and I was in a car crash. And then I go to Trinidad and I hear some tires screech. That trauma will stay with me even though I am somewhere else. I'm still scared. I'm still triggered by it. And some of these people are becoming leaders. Now we have traumatized leaders who are hiring traumatized people. We have this cycle that's going on and on and on. These people have been abused by leaders. These leaders are now, they're becoming leaders. And we're not stopping a cycle because we're not acknowledging trauma. And I think in the past three years, I have never seen the amount of traumatized employees like I have seen. People have been laid off in, including me. 
Right, including me. Yes. Laid off in mass. And now everybody's like, oh, we're going back to normal. And everybody's like, whoa, what normal? What are you talking about? This is not normal. And then we just spent two years where people had time to slow down and think. It is very rare in any decade, in any century, that people have time to just slow down and think. We're locked in our homes. We're realizing our health is a priority, right? I think what people miss all the time with COVID is people died. People, yes, there, a lot of people, people. died. Yes. A lot of people got sick. A lot of people are still suffering from the after effects of what they got. A lot of it was neurological that they've gotten. So I don't care if you believe in it or not, it's there. And so we have this happening. And then we have these companies going, oh, by the way, we want y'all to return to normal. We want y'all back in the office. And it's like, fine, but did you fix the office? Did you hear what the problems were? You have all these people who had disabilities or different abilities who now benefit from remote work and accommodations and being told, well, we can't accommodate you no more. And when you say why, we're like, mm, collaboration. We're not collaborating <laughs> We're not collaborating for two years, right? They're like, oh, we missed the water cooler conversations. You mean those same water cooler conversations that you're always telling me to tell people in my employee communications that it was wasting company time? <laughs> those water cooler conversations? Huh? Okay. Because if understanding Judy's son's wedding in Hawaii is what's going to spark that innovation over by the water cooler, and it doesn't make sense. And it, it, it's so traumatized and it feels so disingenuous. I mean, companies who swore to love their people treated them with some of the biggest disrespect you've heard. And now here we are, you know, yes, a whole traumatized bunch are. of people. Here we are. Here we are. And none of it, the, the reality of it is we're being asked to return to the same when none of us are the same. None of us none are of the us. same after oh. COVID. But speaking yeah. about trauma, you were the person that got me to think about trauma in relationship to work. We had this conversation at the last Work Human Live that I have never been able to get. And I started to reflect on all the workplace trauma that I've been through and that I bring to my current experience. And sometimes I have to ask myself, is this the situation or is this the trauma? So can you talk a little bit about, A, how we can acknowledge and talk more about trauma in the workplace and how we can give ourselves and others grace as we heal from whatever workplace or societal traumas that we've been through and are currently going through? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is allowing ourselves to not be okay and to say it out loud. And I say this from experience because I am one who... I wouldn't tell you how I feel. I don't think that it was a place that worked for that. It wasn't a place that worked for that. My workplace persona was very clear. I had a very clear boundary as to what it is. But as I grew into a leader, I had to realize, and this is a really, really important for leaders. As I grew into a leader, I realized that I could talk about my kids every now and then. Listen, I don't have to talk about my kids for an hour. You don't need to hear about my kids all day. But I could talk about my kid. And if, you know, there was a time, if my child even dreamt of showing up on a Zoom, I mean, the meanest stare, I will turn my Zoom off and almost. I mean, fling them out the room before anybody noticed, right? Like, it was that serious to me. But if she shows up, I'll say, y'all, give me a second. And if you happen to see her hair, 
you know, you know, my kid is there. She wants to say hi. It's fine. Because I realize that there is a parent who is probably on this call right now who is struggling with childcare in that moment. And me doing that, give them permission in that moment to deal with it or to laugh at it because they can laugh at me as a leader, watching my child here dangle around me, running about while I'm, I'm like, you go. Like, I think I have had to learn to allow myself to say, I don't feel okay publicly to allow. Mm-hmm. And I've seen you do that, Misha, and I love it. Thank like I've you. seen where, because it's tough. Because I don't like to feel weak. Mm -hmm. And this is really, really, really true for underrepresented and historically marginalized groups. We don't feel safe not feeling okay. And we don't feel safe typically saying we're not okay because we just assume, and rightfully so, socially, that people immediately think it impacts my work. Nobody talks about Black tears. That's not a thing people talk about. They don't say, well, you know, hair girl and black tears. No, because there is this element of being strong. I had to learn and say as a mantra for a while for me that I did not sign up to be an Avenger. I didn't. I'm tired of the super human. You would be so cute as an Avenger, though. I would, though. But I didn't sign up for it, girl. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't I don't have to be a superhero all the time. I can be tired. I can say that I am not going to have this meeting at 9 a.m., but I recognize I've grown at a point of my career when I could do that. And I need to allow other people to have the grace to be able to tell me that. The other thing is I need to give people the grace to not tell me what's going on. Somebody who's having a childcare issue, for example, or they're, somebody's having a medical issue in their family or their own having a medical issue, they shouldn't have to be able to tell me as a leader, I am having a serious medical issue. I have an issue with childcare today. They should be able to safely say to me, I can't make the meeting this morning. Can we reschedule? I got something yes. going on. That's it. The rest of it is not my concern. And again, it boils down to that trust. And I think we make people feel like they have to justify every element of their existence or it's a threat to work. It's a threat to their ability to be productive. But you didn't know that was going on the entire time while they were being productive. I think we also have to train managers to be a lot more observant. You have somebody who's doing well, doing well, doing well, doing well. Dead. Check on them. Are you okay? Everything all right? Do you need a break? We need to move past this whole process and move into the people. People center how you design mm-hmm. work so that you can really think about what did I miss at work? Mm-hmm. Things shouldn't have to get so dire that it's too late when you realize it, that something is wrong. They put in a two-week notice and you're like, why? I'm like, this person <laughs> has been checked. And everybody on the team, know this person checked out three months ago. What do you mean, Why? <laughs> We're shocked they're still here. They have not been to, they have checked out. I think we have to, as, as leaders, we have, leaders need to check themselves. Leaders mm-hmm. also need to be poured into. They don't point to themselves enough either. As you move up as leaders, and this is even more dire, and I know people will hate to hear this, but marginalized, historically marginalized and underrepresented groups, as they move into leadership positions, it becomes a hunger games for us up there. It we does. Just, we're just trying to keep our spot. We just want to keep our spot because they always act like there can only be one. So we're just out here trying to keep our spot. And you know what we end up doing? I'm talking to all of us here. We turn on each other. 
I know. I've seen it. I've felt it. I have been guilty of it. I had to have a come to Jesus with myself at one point in my career. It is real. It is very, very real. We do. We and we can do better. We, we can, can do better. I just think it's it's little changes. And the bottom mm-hmm. line to everything I'm saying and everything I think I've said today is the whole idea of people centering your design. It's really just asking yourself, how will this decision that I'm about to make, how will this program that I'm about to make, how will this affect X segment of people? That's it. It's one question that you have to ask yourself. Do I need to tweak the design? Do I need to tweak how I communicate? Just ask yourself that. And all that does is people centering your design. I think too often people think that people centering things mean that you can't make any money. Listen, I get it. Most businesses, most, are in there for money. They're Mm -hmm. in there for business. They're in there to sell their products. But here's what. Your employee experience is also a product. The way you treat people is a product. It is something that I am buying when you've interviewed me. You've promised me a value proposition, and that is the product I want. So when you say that you're going to onboard me, give me this job, pay me this salary in exchange for my services, and because let me be clear, a salary is not a gift. So in exchange for my (laughs) services... And then I come in and none of this is true. You wouldn't treat a customer like that, but you're okay with treating me like that because you know, somehow when I got in, you no longer saw me as a person, but we got to do better than that. We We, got to do better than that. We do. Yes. So I have two more questions for you. There is no way I'm going to let you get off this podcast, given our background and our mutual passion for data without talking data. So. Okay. Tell the people, how does data fit into this? How does data and people-centered design go together? Let me start with this. This is the hill I die on. I've done this for a lot of years, and I will always say this. Every data point is a person. So when you work in HR, when you work with people data, when you do people analytics, the responsibility you have to that data and to those people is immense. I say this because if you're an accountant and you're counting money, sure, the government might come after you if you're cheating and stuff. If you miscount, (laughs) fine. You might have to find those dollars. But when you deal with people, people are so nuanced, complicated, and yes, annoying, but every data point is a person. And that's why you need to people-centered design because it needs to inform how you make those decisions. And then when you make the decisions, we need to measure those decisions to make sure they're working. It needs to be a closed loop design all the time, constantly taking in and feeding data out, right? It needs to be constantly doing that because if you mess up those numbers and you make a bad decision, you don't only affect that person. When you decide to lay off people and you decide these are the people to lay off, you know, you also affect the people who get kept. You traumatize them too. When you make a decision not to reward somebody for high performance, the people who are looking on, who are like, okay, maybe I need to throttle it back a little bit because there is no win in this for me. You're affecting them too. And I think we need to understand that people are not just one person, they're networks. You are messing with families. You're messing with networks within your organization. You're messing with external networks. That is the complication of people. And when people ask me, how do you notice social networks? The only reason they have thrived is because people are so connected to each other. I know like 
my producer was asking, how did you meet Misha? And I'm like, Misha and I have been in circles. We stayed in circles for a long time, but didn't actually meet until my company was trying to look into work human. And then they're like, oh, you need to talk to Misha. And then come to find out your sister went to the same college. Went to school with you. And And we know each other. (laughs) Right? We're in the same networks. And I think that's why we need to be responsible. People center design and data go hand in hand. And if you think that it can't make money, we've been doing it on the customer side for decades. We personalize, we optimize, we recognize that customers are humans. That's right. Treat your employee as your other secret customers. That's right. Okay. So I have one last question for you before we wrap things up. I want you to tell the people what Dr. Khalifa is currently doing and what she is up to. Oh, what am I not doing? My life is in constant flow and chaos, evolution, but it's that good chaos. It's that good chaos. It's growth. It's that growth chaos. So I am currently in the process of writing a book. I am, I'm writing all about employee experience. So it's all about this type of stuff in my voice. So I'll be chatting it up and and having lots of fun with that. So it won't be too academic. It'll be like fun and practical guide. I am working on a podcast that will have a similar name, not, not released yet, but that's to come also. So I'm kind of working through that. I am all over social media. So I'm building out my brand because I'm doing what I call experience coaching. So it's all types of experience, the employee experience, people experience. If you're trying to get motivated, if you're trying to make a transition, work that through with you. I call that your main character season. I'm helping people walk into their main character season because I think everybody deserves a brilliant experience. So I'm working on all of that. So look me up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners, please check her out on LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, you said? I don't even Mastodon, know what that is. Mastodon, I got on there. I'm telling Listen, you. Listen, check her I'm out. I'm an ex, though. Okay. We're going to work on that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on How We Work. Thank you all for listening to How We Work. For more episodes, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more on WorkHuman, visit WorkHuman.com and follow us on social at WorkHuman. Thanks to Mike Lovett for producing, Rob Valoy for editing and mixing, and Breakmaster Cylinder for the original music. Talk to you next time.